Welcome back, everybody, to the Luke Beasley Show. I hope you're doing wonderful on this Tuesday. Let's dive in. We start off today talking about something that made headlines and I think is confusing a lot of people and exciting some of those in kind of the anti-vax, anti-mask uh, world. And what it was, was a review that was done by Cochrane of a bunch of or multiple studies looking at the efficacy of masks. And one of the authors, when asked about the conclusion that was drawn from this or kind of his summary, had a very explicit phrase that seemed to clearly indicate everything's been answered. Masks don't work um, 100%. Okay. They don't work. It's been answered. This Cochrane review has given us that answer. And so I want to walk through why that conclusion's flawed um, and actually what we can and can't take from this review. And it'll be a good chance as well, separate from just the specifics of this, to talk about how do we approach scientific information? How do we approach analysis like this so that we can understand what the best way to gain insight is and what insight can be gained from different batches of research and different batches of information. And it actually is going through the awesome, wonderful scientific process, not as I see some people indicating that this is a rejection of the science, if that makes sense. And um, this is really important because like I said, a lot of people are confused about what should be taken away from this Cochrane review, what was looked at with this review. And that is bad because a lot of people now believe things and they believe the science supports the things that they believe that aren't fully um, accurate. So with that being said, here's this review done by Cochrane, like I said, looking at multiple studies, I think it was 78, different batches of research, um, looking at the efficacy of masks, masks for influenza and COVID-19. And the types of headlines that you saw and the types of articles that came out were as follows from the New York Times, this is an op-ed. The most rigorous and comprehensive analysis of scientific studies conducted on the efficacy of masks for reducing the spread of the resp of respiratory illnesses, including COVID-19, was published late last month. Its conclusion, said Tom Jefferson, the Oxford epidemiologist who is its lead author, were unambiguous. Quote, there's just no evidence that they, meaning masks, make any difference, he told the journalist, Marianne Demazi, um, full stop. So that seemed clear, right? Whoa. One of the authors of this review said, full stop they don't work. So why wouldn't that now be our conclusion? Well, as I was walking through the details, and this is part of what we'll talk about a little bit more, why it's important to understand what these types of analyses um, look like, what the methodology is, and gain information from observing um, those details yourself. But here from The Hill, they nicely, not The Hill, sorry, The Guardian, uh, they nicely summarize what I was Noticing when diving into these details, the analysis is flawed because it compares apples to oranges. The paper mixes uh, together studies that were conducted in different environments with different transmission risks. It also combines studies where masks were worn part of the time with studies where masks are worn all of the time. And it blends studies that looked at COVID-19 with studies that looked at influenza. If apples work and oranges don't, but your analysis mixes them together, you may come to the false conclusion that apples don't work. Uh, out of the 78 papers analyzed in the review, only two, only two actually study masking during the COVID-19 
pandemic. And both of those found that masks did protect wearers from COVID-19. But these studies are drowned out by the greater number of studies on influenza included where the benefit of masking is hard to detect because it's a far less contagious virus than COVID-19. So when looking at studies in all these different environments and weighing influenza masking efficacy and COVID-19 masking efficacy and weighing a bunch of information um, about influenza masking. And when you dive into the specifics of some of those studies, even the methodology there was deeply flawed. Um, and I say that not meaning that there was anything wrong going on. All these studies are valuable, but you want to know what they're saying. And even within, as we'll get to in a second here, these batches of research, the researchers recognize where the gaps are, what they are proving, what they're not proving, what they're trying to answer, what they're not. And then people take the wrong conclusions from that. And it's really upsetting to watch. But I understand why there's confusion. You saw that quote. It seemed pretty undeniable. Um, and so uh, here, when you weigh a bunch of information on influenza and flawed studies on even that with a couple or a few effective examples with COVID-19 specifically, and then the answer becomes masking is not affected for, effective for anything, including COVID-19, you are very much misleading um, people. And again, I'm not saying the researchers. It's the way that that information has been synthesized that has caused the confusion. And as I noted here from The Guardian, even the authors themselves acknowledge in the paper the high risk of bias in the trials, variation in outcome measurement, and relatively low adherence with the interventions during the studies hampers drawing firm conclusions. So this brings us, number one, to a clear understanding we should have that while this review was very valuable and, and interesting and um, something that should be focused on because it did look at a lot of studies and there is valuable information to be gathered from that, the answer is not then masking doesn't work for COVID-19 because that's not even what this study uh, spent all of its time looking into and the studies that were, or this review of studies, this, the studies that were included within this review that did look at COVID-19 masking did prove it to be effective. And so you see where the confusion is coming from, but that brings us, um, to how we should approach these things, because I think what ends up happening, and I've noticed this in my personal life when, when I talk with people and they hear one thing from me, one thing from someone else. And, the question is often, okay, if credible sources over here are saying this and credible sources over here are saying this, how do I know what's true and what's not? And it's a more complex answer than just this, but simply it's about understanding the process of gathering information that then leads people to explain conclusions, okay? And often, if you just listen to public health officials, you're gonna get nicely synthesized conclusions based on the information that they gathered. But you also can walk through the information that they gathered and make sure the conclusion makes sense. Because sometimes, either through kind of the telephone game or through misarticulations of what was looked into, what was and wasn't um, a part of the research, there can be a huge misunderstanding that no one's to blame for. 
it's just kind of like I said, the telephone game and a misunderstanding about the limitations of particular research and what particular um, analyses are addressing or what particular studies are addressing. And so what's important, and I wish we did this better in K through 12 education, is for people to understand how studies are done or how different batches of research are done and the methodology, the processes that go into that. And so that you yourself can look into it and go, okay, for example, when looking at this review, you can go and look as I was doing at the particular studies and what their methodology was, what their process was. And they'll explain, this is what we aren't able to address. This is what we were able to address. Here's the limitations. Here's where uh, things could have gotten uh, murky and understand, okay, then putting those together, here's what we can and can't say about what this means. And that I don't think is something that's being done and is able to be done with the mass media format that often communicates the information that comes from scientific research, which is really unfortunate because there is nuance. And in the case of this, it's very fascinating to look at what was reviewed, but based on the focusing on multiple subjects, multiple types of studies, and then smooshing it together into one conclusion that then was recommunicated by a lot of media outlets has caused a situation that's deeply, deeply unfortunate, um, but reminds us what the process is that we should be going through when looking at this type of information. Continuing with our discussion about possible clarifications that need to be made about recent headlines in regard to COVID-related things, speaking of that, um, the U.S. Energy Department concluded that most likely, based on their determination, COVID leaked out of a lab in China. Now, a few things to say up front, just before we dive into the specifics, so you're not spending any time um, without these caveats and without these clarifications. Still, much of those investigating and much of the scientific community believes it uh, originated in a market in China. And even the energy department determined this with, quote, low confidence. And so this is not a 100% answer. And also this does not at all determine intentionality. And so for some of the conspiracy theorists who from the beginning have been saying this was a bioweapon attack from China and it was all purposeful, all coordinated, some people saying it was to get Trump out of office by hurting him in the election and all of that, not at all what's going on here. So just throw that in the garbage. But it's interesting. And we do want to know where COVID originated. So investigations into this are important. And when we get information on it, of course, I want to update you because one entity, the U.S. Energy Department, um, is now coming out and saying with low confidence, but the conclusion they have is that most likely it did leak from a lab. So then what is that process? or what does that process look like? Why would it have leaked from a lab? You probably can assume this, but across the world, diseases, viruses are being studied and uh, it would have been getting studied in a lab and then accidentally, most likely leaked out of the lab, right? Um, and so we have to understand this so that we can also condemn, hold accountable China, because if this is negligence, for example, 
and it wasn't just a jump of a virus from um, an animal to a person, then we want to be aware of that so that we can um, hold China accountable and, and demand answers on how this took place and how so many lives were lost because of it. And uh, that's important. But jumping to this means that China did a bioweapon attack on us um, purposefully is not the correct way to go. And I say once again, many entities still think market uh, animal to human jump is most likely. And I don't think we'll ever really know because China is not participating much in the investigations that are going on. But here from the New York Times, the Energy Department's conclusion with low confidence that an accidental laboratory, uh, laboratory leak in China most likely caused the coronavirus pandemic has renewed questions about what sparked the, wor the worst public health crisis in a century and whether the virus at the heart of it was somehow connected to scientific research. So definitely interesting and important. Here is, uh, let's see, John Kirby talking about this news. Energy's findings, the lab leak most likely caused the pandemic. How should Americans respond? How should Americans understand China's response here? Um, saying that this is politically motivated, it's a lie, there's no science to back it, and swatting down this information. Well, I can't speak for the Chinese, and I wouldn't uh, endeavor to, to do that. Um, but just let me back up a little bit. The president made uh, trying to find the origins of COVID a priority right when he came into office. And he's got a whole of government effort designed to do that. Uh, there is not a consensus right now in the U.S. government about exactly how COVID started. Uh, there is just not an intelligence community consensus. And I would add that one of the things the president did was he, he's the one who tasked the national labs, which were put up through the Department of Energy, to study this as well. So it wasn't just an effort that was confined to the intelligence community. Right. So I am always aggravated when we have a really good example of what's broken about our current political reality, especially the way that the media drives our political reality, because it's so interesting to get this information and important to know where uh, the pandemic originated. But then it has to become debunking conspiracy theories and saying what this does and doesn't mean and clarifying and all of that because everyone's ready to, oh, they want it to be their conclusion so quickly and without all the evidence. And it doesn't have to be that way if we, got, we, if we could all have a nuanced take on these things and understand uh, what's going on, then we could have more meaningful discussions. And what this proves, which this won't be the conclusion from conspiracy theorists, is this conspiracy that the U.S. government, because China controls Biden and Hunter Biden's laptop is why China controls Biden, that this was all being covered up. They didn't want the answers. They were trying to suppress the correct um, information on this. But it's Biden's administration that's even looking into this. It's Biden that is enlisting those within his administration to get answers. And so this is not an example of some cover-up. They're trying to get the answers. As we get evidence, as we gather information, then we'll know more. And uh, we should only draw conclusions that have the evidence for them as that's being gathered. It's not that difficult of a process unless you're obsessed with building a narrative 
before you really know if that narrative is backed um, by the evidence. Here is Corinne Jean-Pierre getting asked um, about this and specifically the conspiracy theory type stuff. Not so long ago, a point where anyone asking the question of whether a lab leak was a credible theory that should be looked into, you know, a lot of those people were derided as, as fringe, you know, conspiracy theorists. So are there lessons learned, you know, looking back about how we discuss um, theories when we don't have all of the answers? So what, here's what I can tell you is the president's commitment to getting to the bottom of this, right? That is what's the most important so that we can you know, we can share this with Congress, we can share this with the American people. That is why he asked the IC uh, to do its work. And right now, there is no consensus. There is no consensus. You heard this from Jake Sullivan. Right. Um, so then an, another really important point in regard to this is to understand the narrative we're hearing now from some within, I know it's not the whole right, but kind of the, the part of the right that's really anti vax anti-mask all those things and also kind of conspiratorial about some of this is that now all the people who were speaking out against some of the conspiracy theories are being proven wrong here it's kind of what you're hearing from some people but one of the things is it was those people who are now saying this okay it's the same type of thinking that leads us to want answers and to get those answers or partially or gather information to say what the energy department is now um, saying. But also from the beginning, public health officials and individuals like Biden, individuals like Fauci, were saying, we want to look into the origins of COVID and get answers on that. Now, of course, you're going to call out when people are saying, this is what happened, and they don't have evidence for it. And you'll call that out for not having evidence for it. Let's get the evidence and then have a conclusion. But because some people don't understand that process of you get evidence and then you have your conclusion rather than having a conclusion and then trying to find evidence for it, they think this is a reversal, but it's not from the beginning. Now, this is slightly ignoring, and this also is perfectly great to discuss, social media's role. I know at the very beginning they were um, flagging or taking down tweets that were talking about lab leak and then reversed that and stopped doing that and uh, would allow those. And so that little overzealous, admittedly, but the idea that there was this coordinated effort by public health officials and uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats to cover up the truth and now they're having to admit it is just the opposite of what's going on here. We're seeing the process at work, the good process of waiting till you have evidence, gathering it, and then saying what you do and you don't know. They're saying low confidence, but we think most likely lab leak. And then others are saying based on the evidence we have, still markets most likely, everyone agrees we're unsure. That's fine, that's the process. Um, and there's nothing conspiratorial that you have to do with your thinking um, to analyze this, even though many will unfortunately, as you know. Well, the story continues with the Dominion lawsuit against Fox News and the information that's being revealed through that. Now we have to talk about Rupert Murdoch um, and the things that are being revealed about him through this. 
in regard to the election lies. So we're going to walk through some stunning revelations, but to kind of give you the context in case you've missed it, Dominion Voting Systems is suing uh, Fox Corporation based on the lies that the hosts and the executives bolstering the messages of the hosts um, perpetuated, the guests that were brought on to perpetuate these lies and the endorsement from hosts of the lies being told by guests, specifically in between the 2020 election, Trump's loss, and when he left office, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani being people who would come on the network, um, and then the hosts lying about the election being stolen, and so many dangerous batches of rhetoric were present, as you guys remember. And so they're now being sued for defamation. And what is being revealed throughout these um, events, through this process, is truly incredible. This is from CNN, 10 points that we're going to walk through. We won't um, go through all of them, but this article goes through 10 points that were truly stunning here. Uh, in the wake of the election, Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch, chair of Fox Corporation, wrote in an email to the New York Post's Cole Allen describing election lies that Trump was pushing as BS and damaging. So the top dog at Fox recognizing that Trump is pushing BS, as he said, damaging rhetoric about the election, and he's not getting his hosts to stop being the ones pushing those lies, supporting those lies. It's so backwards. Murdoch also said it was, quote, wrong for Tucker Carlson to host conspiracy theorist Mike Lindell after the election. When asked why he continued to allow the MyPillow CEO to continue appearing on Fox News, Murdoch signaled it was a business decision and said, quote, it is not red or blue, it is green, he said. That's a shocking admission from Murdoch about what actually guides coverage at Fox News. It is not red or blue, it's green. That's why he allowed his incredibly powerful media empire to wage an all-out assault on our demo uh, democracy and our democratic processes and the legitimacy um, or perceived legitimacy of our democratic process. Murdoch responded to one email from Paul Ryan by telling him that Sean Hannity had been, uh, quote, been privately disgusted by Trump for weeks, but was scared to lose viewers. In other words, Hannity, who also claims to say the same things on camera as when he's off camera, was not being upfront with his loyal audience for fear they rebel against him. Would you have ever guessed if you just took Sean Hannity's performance, his entertainment performance on air, as it actually is, um, at face value, that he was disgusted by what Trump was saying? Absolutely not. It was Sean Hannity. It was Laura Ingram. It was uh, Maria Bartiromo. It was Tucker Carlson, Lou Dobbs, all of these individuals actually making people believe the things that behind the scenes they were finding disgusting and finding Trump disgusting. Murdoch, this is, <laughs> this is wild. Rupert Murdoch gave Jared Kushner, quote, confidential information about then candidate Joe Biden's ads, along with debate strategy in 2020, the filing said, offering Trump's son-in-law a preview of Biden's ads before they were public at most news organizations. This type of action would result in investigation and disciplinary measures. Um, so, 
I know I said most of what's being looked at here is in between Trump's loss and him actually leaving office because that's when it was running rampant and directed a lot towards Dominion. And that's when Sidney Powell was relevant and Rudy Giuliani, all these different things. Um, but also this is during the 2020 campaign, Murdoch just completely coordinating with Jared Kushner, which can we please recognize from the people lately who have been saying the Twitter files is the biggest example of this horrible coordinated effort from media slash social media um, and political figures to change the results of an election. Are they going to care about that? The chair of Fox Corporation directly giving uh, information, as it's being called, confidential information to someone within the opposing parties or uh, opposing candidates administration and discussing debate strategy is that not outrageous is that not some coordinated effort to help trump in the election but no they only care when it's in relation to with the very weak facts to support it um joe biden murdoch asked fox news ceo Susan Scott to have Handy say something supportive about Republican Senator Lindsey Graham ahead of the 2020 election. Murdoch explained, we cannot lose the Senate if at all possible. In other words, Murdoch was directing the head of his uh, talk network to help the GOP. Again, this is this type of directive from an executive would be a major scandal at an actual news network, CNN writes. Absolutely accurate. Just the complete unity and team sport nature of the interactions between fox news and republican uh politicians and still you're going to trust that they're giving you information that's at all um accurate or based on the facts not just completely based on their biases holy smokes um when Shepard Smith attacked the Trump administration's lies on air, Rupert emailed Scott and Fox News President Jay Wallace, calling it over the top and telling them, need to chat to him. Um, and that one continues saying that coverage of um, reporting on Trump, a Trump rally should be a celebration of the president. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, let's see. Continuing. Murdoch said he suggested or urged the firing of host Lou Dobbs because he was an extremist, but allowed him to continue hosting a program at the network until after the election. Dominion argues that's because Dobbs was popular with Trump and his supporters in the network was fending off viewer defections to Newsmax. So someone who has the power to stop someone like Lou Dobbs from putting out all this propaganda and recognizes that he was, quote, an extremist and urging the firing of Lou Dobbs at some point, but ultimately deciding, nah, we're going to let him continue spreading this disinformation. It is truly stunning and as low character as you can possibly get. Not red or blue, but green. That quote is going to stick in my brain for a very long time because you are doing such a disservice to the entire country, to the world, by supporting, and as I said, the assault against our democratic process, lying about the reality of our elections, the most crucial part of our 
American reality, which is allowing people's voices to be heard through a democratic process. And if this assault continues, if enough, enough people stop believing in the efficacy and legitimacy and functionality of our democratic process, we will not have a functioning one any longer. And that'll be because of people like Trump, like all of these hardcore MAGA election deniers and the media networks that supported them. And so it seems clear within these uh, these lawsuit uh, situations that Rupert Murdoch fully understands that's exactly what happened. He knows it was lies and I allowed it to continue on my network because the green, I wanted to keep the audience. I cared more about short-term cash than long-term democracy. That's what he cared about. It is so enraging. And I'm sure we will continue to get information out of this lawsuit that is so accurately characterizing and revealing to us the reality of Fox News and how it is just, as if we didn't know this before, a propaganda machine. And it's so dangerous. Let me know what you think of all of it. Luke P. Beasley on Twitter. Marjorie Taylor Greene is continuing pushing her national divorce idea that she's been very excited about. We've talked about why it is such an incorrect and vile stance to hold, but we'll continue to talk about it as she continues to push it. Dangerous stuff here. So during a recent interview on Real America's Voice, she said um, this, and then we'll discuss. So I simply propose that we need a national divorce where we can split into red states and blue states and no, that doesn't mean a civil war and that doesn't mean that you can't travel to different states and there would still be trade and commerce and so forth, but it's simply a divide because we're really sick and tired of fighting with each other and blue states, well, you know what, if you have transition schools um, to change children's gender, that would be horrific, but that would happen in blue states. If they want to have Antifa burning down cities and they want to abolish the police in blue states, have at it. So I simply propose. So, separate from how horrible of a thing to push for this is, it's also based on false characterizations of the stances of the other side. The two reasons I heard her cite there were transition schools, I guess, meaning blue state parents are going to send their kids to schools that just transition all of them to um, <laughs> a different gender. Yeah, sure. That's definitely what the left is pushing for. And then abolishing the police. There's like two people in the country who want to abolish the police. Um, <laughs> it's always this complete, I would say misunderstanding, but purposeful misunderstanding or miscommunication is more accurate of what the left stands for to justify horrible, horrible stances that she just wants to hold. She just wants to believe it's justified to no longer be in the same country, but sort of, because she's saying we still will have sort of a federal government, but it'll be different, and red states will be autonomous, and all these incoherent explanations. She just wants to believe that, based on um, probably a more complex conversation about her values and her beliefs. But she's using complete, pulled out of thin air, ideas of what the other side is um, to justify that. And it's pretty wild to watch, but I'll just quickly run through and then we have a second clip from this interview. Again, 
And I am having a hard time even understanding what her proposal is because she said, no, it's not two separate countries. We would be one country. But if you move from red states to blue state or blue states to red states, you wouldn't be able to vote for five years. And there wouldn't be any really federal programs except for uh, military. And so does the federal government govern them or not at all? And just one unified military, honestly, very incoherent. Um, her explanation, but if you were to in some way split the country into two, it would not work red states, blue states. <laughs> Just think about, pick any state for the most part, except for some very, very um, completely rural states. But for the most part, every state has really blue areas and really red areas, and then overall it'll tilt one way or another. So since I live in Texas, I'll use that as an example. Texas is a red state, but there are tons of Democratic voters and huge cities where democratic voters are very um prominent and so are you saying now they have to no longer be a part of their country and they're a part of the red state version of their country or what bizarre and if you were to have a red state autonomous group of states that is still part of the united states but sort of luck <laughs> um that would be disastrous because as we know poverty education crime all these different things are disproportionately worse in red states. So putting together only those um, states would make it very tough to deal with all those problems um, without the extra subsidization that goes into um, the subsidizing from blue states to red states and the federal programs that are able to address some of those problems. But next clip here from this interview. Well, Congresswoman, wouldn't that just be, I mean, that, that sounds to me a lot like federalism, where states are laboratories of democracy. That's where most of the power resides. So states could do their own thing. Red states can have what they want in their schools and, and otherwise blue states the same. Remove some of that power from the federal government and put it back in the states. Yes, it is more like federalism, but it takes some bold actions in Washington that nobody in Washington wants to take, and that would be getting rid of our own power. We would be cutting big bureaucracies and agencies. Department, The Department of Education would have to go because states would be in charge. What about the Department of Transportation that just taxes Americans and then turns around and gives money back to the states with a little surcharge? The Department of Transportation would have to go and states could be in charge of, of their own transportation and their own highways. There's many other departments that we could cut and reduce their size, uh, get rid of their bureaucracy and send the unelected bureaucrats back to the private sector where hopefully companies would definitely be hiring and they, they always are and they could get different jobs there. Um, Amtrak would be something that the federal government wouldn't pay for and it could be privatized and then our rails would have to be made safe again because we've all seen what happened in East Palestine. What a horrible disaster. But the main point of what I'm talking about is the real issue that guess what? If you look at the pollings, Americans support it and they support it on both sides of the aisle. I'm just only the only one that's willing to talk about it in Washington at this time. Did you hear that? I don't know how she doesn't just instantly crumble from embarrassment at what she's saying. She cited East Palestine as a reason that it would be good to get rid of all of these uh, federal entities and privatize rail related things. What? 
It's the lack of regulation that allows these things to happen. We need more regulation on the railroad industry. Privatizing things will make it to where Norfolk Southern has even more authority over their own decision making when it comes to their safety practices, which would cause more of these things to happen. And we can directly tie into so many different industries and uh, draw a line between regulations and decreased events that are negative and are disastrous like what we're seeing in East Palestine. So privatizing everything and getting rid of all these different programs that regulate different industries would be horrible. And also, so often, Republican politicians advocate for getting the government out of your life. And I've said before, it depends on what the government's doing in what part of your life, right? Um, it's not always good to deregulate and it's not always good to do more regulations. It depends on what we're talking about. You have to have a nuanced understanding of that. But so often the actions that the Republican politicians would take would disproportionately hurt their voters. So let's just pick one example, okay? The USPS. So often we're hearing from conservatives, oh, it's so inefficient, it's so dumb, we should privatize the postal service completely and we don't need to be wasting money on this and the private companies can do it better and blah, 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 blah. Okay. If that happened, it probably would be still not that much of an inconvenience for those who live in uh, very high, highly populated areas to get their mailing needs fulfilled through private alternatives because it's low cost for the private alternatives to be delivering between places with um, larger populations. But the reason USPS is so necessary, one of the reasons, is because it allows anyone in the entire country, no matter where you live, no matter how rural of an area, to get mail to you for not an outrageous cost. And so Republicans disproportionately have very rural voters, voters that live in very rural areas. And if they did that, it would all of a sudden be so expensive for those voters to get mail to them, to get necessary medicine that's sent through the mail or whatever it might be. And it would hurt them disproportionately. It's not that hard to figure out and not that expensive between, you know, cities and stuff. But to get mail way out into a rural area, that becomes very difficult. And that's why it's awesome that we have the USPS that makes that doable and is absolutely promising that for so many people who otherwise would either not get what they need or be charged so much more because it's more expensive to get out to rural areas. So it is really backwards. And the advocacy for politicians that so many individuals love is actually working directly against the interests of those same individuals and uh, truly drives me bonkers. If you like the show, if you watch, you listen, whatever you might do, and you want to show your support, the best way, well, there's lots of ways, but right now, what I'm asking is that you subscribe to the channel. Make sure um, you're subscribed. Some people, because they see the videos, they think they are, but just make sure that actually, boom, that subscribe button is clicked. That allows us to continue to grow and flourish and survive. Thank you. There is a bill on track to be signed into law by Governor Bill Lee. He said he plans on it and it seems to be on that um, path in Tennessee that would essentially ban all 
drag queens from public and all drag performances from so many different places. And we're going to talk about the danger of this bill. We're going to talk about why it's absurd. But I want to upfront say, because this is what you have to be on the lookout for. This is a strategy that's being used by many, especially in these red states passing some wild um, laws where you claim to be addressing one problem, but then kind of Trojan horse in a bunch of other things that you're going after. So the problem that's being claimed to be the purpose and what's being addressed here of this bill is sexualization of children and uh, making sure children, for example, don't go to stripper shows. Okay, everyone can agree children shouldn't be going to a strip club. Everyone agrees we need to fight against grooming and sexualization of children. But then the bill takes that to mean ban drag queens from public. So don't be tricked. Whenever they pose to you something reasonable, like, don't you want to stop grooming? Of course. And then say, okay, so that's why you have to ban drag queens. Don't play that game. It's incredibly dishonest. Um, take a look at this from the Tennessean. Tennessee Governor Bill Lee said Monday he intends to sign an anti-drag show bill into law when it reaches his desk. The first time he has publicly taken a position on the legislation, the legislation bans adult-oriented entertainment that is harmful to minors from public property in places where they might be seen by children. The law specifically mentions go-go dancers, exotic dancers, strippers, and male or female impersonators the latter of which includes drag performers. Under the bill, a first offense would be charged as a misdemeanor and the second as a felony for male or female impersonation. Now, of course, what they'll do is say, what are you for strip clubs being open to children? No, but you're including male or female impersonators. Go keep them out of the public eye. Do you understand how broad that is? And this misunderstanding about drag queens and drag performances is so enraging because often they conflate sexual drag shows with just being a drag queen, drag performances generally. And the point I've made in my personal life a lot is, you know how you have dancing? Like dancing. We, we, we know dancing, right? Okay, dancing. So dancing you can have, I don't know why I said that so many times. It was going to be funny and then it got annoying. I know. Um, you have sexual dancing. I wouldn't want kids to see. Of course. Strippers at a strip club dance sexually. That's dancing, but I wouldn't want kids to see that. But then you also have dancing. I would be perfectly great with children seeing. And so we can make that distinction with dancing. Drag performance is a different type of performance that includes dancing as well, but uh, categorizing as a different type of performance. You could have sexual performances that might happen at certain types of clubs or whatever, and that would be for adults. And you can have normal or uh, just drag performances without the sexual um, inclusion. And people say that's impossible, and their explanation is drag is inherently sexual. And it was created because of some fetish and it's a sexual thing all the time which that doesn't even track because when you look into the history of drag performances drag queens you understand even in shakespeare's day the purpose of drag performances or performers was to fill roles that women weren't allowed to fill on stage in theaters um and so men would fill them being a drag queen interesting 
bet you didn't know that one. Um, and so here, this is so vague, so purposely targeting a group of people um, and attempting to merge it with stripping or exotic dancers in front of children, uh, which is really dishonest. And I, for example, I like Taylor Swift, all right? I'll say it. Go Taylor Swift. If for Halloween this year, I wanted to wear a cardigan, I don't know, and a wig that looked like Taylor Swift and hold a microphone and go in public and swift it up, would that be against his law if I went and celebrated for some reason Halloween in Tennessee? I mean, the reason they're doing this is so that people are just afraid completely to uh, express themselves in any way that's not okay with Governor Bill Lee. And it's pretty sickening. And people should be able to do these things. And no one's talking about sending children to strip clubs. No one's talking about the examples you can find of very sexual drag shows. No one's talking about children going to those. It's this purposeful blurring of the lines and uh, merging of different ideas, dishonest portrayal of different ideas to target people and things that they find to be distasteful for whatever reason. Well, apparently Governor Bill Lee has done the horrible crime of dressing up as a woman. Uh, bills have gone through now. The, the transgender bill, children's transgender therapy, that's on your desk. A uh, drag bill heads back to the Senate for a quick amendment before it hits your desk. Uh, Comfortable signing those types of legislation? Yeah, I expect to sign both of them. Josh? Dressing in drag in 1977. What a ridiculous, ridiculous question that is. Conflating something like that to sexualized entertainment in yeah. front of children, which drag is a is very not, serious subject. Drag is not, not sexual. Andy? So apparently, that's a yearbook photo of him dressed as a woman in high school or something. Um, and it shows you the hypocrisy um, or the dishonesty of these talking points. Because if you actually cared about fighting against grooming, trying to decrease its prevalence in our society, preventing children from being sexualized, you would not, you would not be lying about what's going on in regard to people. You would not be targeting people needlessly. You would actually try to address the real problems that are there on that front, which matter. I think that matters. We should make sure kids aren't being sexualized, aren't being groomed, aren't being assaulted, all these different things. But guess who's not helping with that? You, because you're focusing on drag performances that are perfectly, uh, you know, not sexual and making that out to be the problem purposefully because it plays well with your base because you just can't even handle that someone who's a man would wear a dress at some point. And it truly is dangerous and it's not even close to what you would be doing if you actually cared about the problems that you're purporting to care about. Well, I have one more part of an interview from my visit to South Carolina, Trump's speech that he did. Uh, there where I talked to Trump supporters. And this one is pretty stunning, I gotta tell you. So stick around for it. Um, but to give you kind of the context, me and producer Ben, who's not with me today, unfortunately, um, traveled to South Carolina. Trump was giving a speech there. And something, if you're not familiar with my channel, I do 
on a somewhat regular basis, which is talk to Trump supporters at rallies and get a sense of what's going on. And this individual that we've started to refer to here as the Trump shirt guy, you'll see why. Um, and if you've been watching all the videos, you've seen some from his interview, but this is one of the most uh, bonkers parts. Um, he promised me, essentially, and said there's no way this won't happen. And what this was, was Trump will take back over as president before the 2024 election. So not he's going to win in 2024 um, or before 2025 would be actually the correct way to say that. But he won't get back in by winning the 2024 election, even though he's at an event where Trump is campaigning for that election. Okay. He'll become president. The military will bring him in as the current president. But this individual also said that he's currently president right now. It's very confusing. Um, before then, and he said there's no way that that won't happen. There are things that's got to come together okay. before this all is going to be revealed. And I know a lot of patients, a lot of people keep saying, well, when's this going to happen? When's this going to happen? And and I know we have people who keep telling us this is going to happen this time, and, and that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. But I believe it's going to happen. I believe it's going to happen soon. I think it's going to happen in 2023. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And by it, do you mean publicly, uh, publicly Trump taking back over as president? Oh yes. I I believe the military is in control. Um, I don't I don't know anything that much about military law. Gotcha. But I think if you dug into it and found out what military law does, what they can do, uh, would be surprising to a lot of people. Okay. And if Trump never takes back over, will that cause you to start disbelieving some of the things you believe now? Uh, then you're going to have. He, he absolutely will take over, you're saying? Uh, yeah. Okay. And not, not 2024 neither. Before that? Oh, yeah. So if I circled back with you in 2024, not that I could, but... If hypothetically I did, what would you be? You're just saying no chance in 2024 he won't be president. No. Okay. I'll hold you to that somehow, even okay. though we won't keep up with each other. Okay. Um, that's all I got. Thank you. So, I have one more thing I want to show you, but to respond to that, during the same interview, um, and you'll see this in the next thing I'm going to show you, but, and I've shown it in past segments, but <laughs> just to continue, uh, he said that Trump's currently the president, the military's in control, and Trump's directing that. But I guess he'll actually be put in the White House before 2024. But Biden's being a bad president now, even though Trump's president. And he's at a campaign rally for Trump's real, or not re-election, but election um, in 2024, his campaign. Ah, it hurts. So... One of the things that I realized, and this brings us to the next clip I'll show you, in these interview contexts, is that there is a different approach to reality among a lot of the individuals that I talk to than the way I approach reality. And what it brings is this belief that simply believing something is enough. The justification for believing something is that you believe it. Does that make sense? And I had that realization. And then I went and watched this guy's interview and realized 
how many times he said, I believe, I believe, I believe. And that to me is a great example of even subconsciously he realizes it's just a belief. It's not a belief because of blank, because of empirical facts, because of evidence. It's a belief just because he made a decision to believe it. And watch how many times, just and during I this one, uh, sorry, one guy's interview, how many times he said, believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. Not this is, but I believe. Not Trump is president, but I believe he's president. I believe everything she did. And I believe, believe that. I just believe God, I believe, chose him. I believe, I actually believe everything. I do believe, I believe, and I actually believe that Trump is president right now. I believe they have proof of it. I believe, my, this is my personal opinion, I believe, I believe God, I believe what, I also believe that, that I believe it's gonna happen, I believe it's gonna happen soon. I'll hear that he's president right now, but the stealing of the, the election was bad, but how could it have been stolen if he's still president now? And he's running for president, but why would he run for a third term if he's still I president? Can't, I can't answer that. Okay. I don't know how that, all that works Put out. Together. Okay. I just believe, and I believe they're, I believe the military is in control. I mean, it is so wild. And I do think that indicates a level of awareness somewhere in his subconscious that it's just a belief and it's not necessarily backed up. We know in this case it's not, but this general way of approaching reality, not necessarily attached to facts that could be provided. And I think we need to get out of this way of thinking for some that just simply making a decision to have an opinion makes that opinion somehow closer to reality because you have decided it to be. And I know that sounds almost really incoherent, but it is an incoherent way of approaching reality. So then me explaining it isn't going to come off particularly sound, um, but truly hard to get my brain around how everything in how you approach politics and just the world is rooted not in an ongoing exploration for evidence, facts, based on your understanding of critical thinking, that's how you analyze those facts and those batches of evidence, to get your mind and your understanding of the world most calibrated and aligned with what is, not what you want it to be, not with um, what you've been told that it is, but what actually exists. But instead, it's I'm going to shape my reality in the way that I choose through a decision to believe things. And once I've made that decision, that decision is the justification for why this is the truth. Crazy. Absolutely wild. Um, so there it is. Holy smokes, ladies and gentlemen. Let me know what you think. Luke P. Beasley on Twitter. Thank you for watching and listening to today's show. I will see you tomorrow.